Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. My name is John Keeley. This is the podcast segment of our show that is not broadcast on station KALA. Our guest for the 372nd show is Dr. Catherine Rimpf chair of the history department at the University of Missouri, who will be talking to us about the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Our history buff for today is Brett Menard. Brett, the floor is yours. Thanks, John. At the end of the radio segment, we talked a little bit about the alliances that were made between white women and African-Americans to African-American men to get uh, women the right to vote. How active were African-American women in that push? Um, well, um, that, I mean, that particular push with Tennessee, I don't know exactly, but they, um, African-American women were very active in the suffrage movement in communities where you had, you know, say, you think about like large urban northern um, communities like in Chicago, right, where African-American, there's a, there's a large number of African-Americans, they can exercise the right to vote, and where um, women become quite active in um, campaigning on those issues and then quite active after uh, enfranchisement um, organizing politically. But the white women suffrage movement as we um, had has a kind of uneasy um, relationship with black women suffragists because you know on on the one hand um, there were there were plenty of white leaders who um, were were you know happy to have the the, the support and of of black women's organizations because they did a lot of work for the movement um, but there was this concern that, you know, in, in terms of kind of pragmatic politics, that if the movement became too associated with the rights of black women, that it would be harder to win support um, uh, among uh, the southern states. And so that relationship was uneasy and, um, uh, and sometimes quite openly racist. Well, to take that a little further, I had read that there were uh, back to southern states, one of the reasons that some southern men, uh, and I'm not saying it's just the South, although they had the Jim Crow laws, I'm sure there are men all over the nation who had this same wicked uh, belief, but they were saying the reason you wanted women to vote was that because a lot of the southern women would vote in line with the white women to keep Jim Crow laws at the local and state level intact. Is that true? Sure. And then, yeah, so that's, that's, again, the argument that, well, yeah, it would be great to have white women vote um, because then they can counteract the votes of black men. And you see some similar kinds of arguments um, in some of the, you know, northern areas that have really high immigrant populations, right, that, well, maybe if we're going to, or if we're going to enfranchise women, it would be good to enfranchise um native-born women, because then they can counteract um, the votes of immigrant men 
um, who had become citizens and who could who could vote. And, you know, there's some really pernicious rhetoric in there. Um, I think as historians, it's there are ways that we can understand it, though, even if we don't agree with it, that um, uh, uh, so with, with with in terms in terms of immigrants, you have these these um, well-educated women suffragists who feel like they are very competent to exercise political judgment. And they're being told um, that uh, women have no business in politics. And they find themselves getting increasingly frustrated by the fact that immigrant men, who they don't think are as well-educated as they are, <laughs> um, that they can come and vote when they when when um, uh, native-born women can't. And so then they will start using this rhetoric, like you know these these um, ignorant immigrant men. Ig- the ignorant immigrant man has a right, which I, as an educated native-born, refined, cultured woman, don't have. And that just seems so wrong. Like it's that kind of zero-sum game. So you do see those those kinds of arguments, not just in the South, as you pointed out, um, but also in areas where there's a lot of um, prejudice against immigrants. Catherine, I'm I'm curious. You know, usually in history classes, John and I are both history teachers um, by training. You know, you always get sort of that list of the usual subjects who show up, that three or four people who, who show up um, as major players in the movement. Um, my question is, who are we missing? Who, who is a, a major player, has a big impact that our listeners might not ever have heard of? Um, well, so I will, I will name Ida B. Wells, um, who um, is maybe um, best known for her, the, her national and international campaign against lynching. She was an African-American woman from Memphis, Tennessee, who um, uh, uh, became a, a national figure in her camp. Her, she was a journalist. And she um, uh, did a lot of reporting on lynching across the South and became and, you know, went around the country speaking out against lynching and speaking on behalf of a federal anti-lynching law. But when she's run out of Memphis, which she, you know, she was um, because her writings were so controversial, she went to Chicago and she formed um, what she called the Alpha Woman Suffrage Club, and that was an organization of black women suffragists um, who became really important in, in the movement and really important politically in Chicago as, as well. So she's really, and she's just a fascinating, fascinating person. You know, she was bold and controversial in a period when that was not so easy for women to do and not so easy for black women to do. I was going to ask a question. Um, Is there, um, to the other extreme, what Jay was talking about, um, whenever I think of women's suffrage, uh, bizarrely, because I'm a European historian more of, I very much think of um, Emily Wilding Davidson, who threw her body in the horse's race during one of a, the races in 1913 to sacrifice her life to die for the rights of women's suffrage. Do we have any women to our knowledge um, in America that took their own lives to this extreme? And and this made international news. Yeah. Well, there were the, there were the women who um, 
had who were arrested for picketing in front of the White House, who then went to jail, and they um, uh, wanted to be um, that they were arrested for um, kind of blocking the sidewalk. That was the charge that they were arrested under. But they felt that they were actually being arrested for um, political crimes, that they were political prisoners, and um, because they felt they were being arrested for their political beliefs. And so they went on hunger strikes in, um, uh, in, in the jails in order to call attention to, um, uh, you know, their um, belief that they should be classified as political prisoners. And... Um, they uh, many of them ended up being force fed in really violent ways, um, and I don't believe any of them died, but it was um, quite uh, violent, and they were you know risking their health and their lives in doing so. Okay, Brett, can you talk to us a little bit about um, some of the tactics that? people would use to to argue against women's suffrage right right i mean that's it that's a that's a great question again because i think people today have such a hard time even believing that people opposed uh women's suffrage but um so a lot of it had to do with um the belief that if women had the right to vote it would um undermine the family and that the family is the bedrock of society on which stability the stability of society rests and that if women have the right to vote they will be at war with the men in their families right that they won't um, necessarily agree on how to vote and so it will be disruptive to um, to families because you know men were supposed to represent their um, wives and children in the public sphere. The women didn't need the right to vote because they were represented by men. If women needed the right to vote, it implies that their interests were different from men. And if their interests were different from men, then it would be disruptive to their families um, and to society. So that's um, you know that's part of the. Um, part of the argument, and and that's where a lot of the women who were opposed to suffrage um, felt as well. But also, what many of those women opponents worried about, because a lot of them come from the af- from affluent classes, and they're involved in a lot of the same kinds of social reform movements that suffragists were involved in. But they felt that, you know, whereas suffragists felt that they needed the vote in order to enact those reforms, the anti-suffragists worried that if women were given the right to vote, that women would become as corrupt as men, and that women could be most effective in their um, social reform efforts if they remain, if they retained a kind of detached purity and did not kind of sully themselves or drag their skirts through the mud of male politics. So that's part of it, too. Um, And then the argument that's already been mentioned, which is um, uh, uh, if if, uh, women are given the right to vote, it will also enfranchise immigrant women or women of color, and it would be better if we didn't do that. 
You know, right. so there's, there's different arguments. All right, uh, Catherine, I get the honor of having the last question, and mm-hmm. so my question is going to be. So ratification takes place in 1920. We've had all of these doomsday scenarios of what would happen if women's suffrage was approved, uh, or we've had all of these you know, rose-colored glasses assumptions of what could be accomplished if women had the right to vote. Um, how many of any of those things actually did come true? So, so what is the aftermath of women's suffrage ultimately in practical terms? Well, I mean, one aftermath I would say is, and I would always, I always emphasize this to my students, is that the ratification of the 19th Amendment is not the beginning of women voting, because women had been voting in many states and localities for quite a while. And it is also not the end of the movement, because there are so many American women who do not, who are not able to exercise the right to vote, because they continue to be um, prevented from doing so. Um, on the basis of race or national origin, um, et cetera. But for those um, women who, who were voting in the 1920s, um, by the end of the decade, there were a lot of people who said, well, women's voting was a, it was a failure because there was no big disruption. All of these um, uh, social justice planks supported by suffragists, they don't all become law. But that's, you know, that's actually not surprising because what happens is that women divide among the parties just the way that men did. And the changes that um, women's suffrage brings about are more subtle. So there are things like changing the site where voting happens away from places like saloons and barbershops to places like schools and churches where women were more comfortable entering to vote. Um, women had before, um, you know, from the late 19th century, early 20th century, women had been using lobbying as a way to exercise power when they couldn't vote. And they continue lobbying, um, the kind of lobbying activities and lobbying becomes a more, um, central part of American politics. And women really emphasize voter education, um, as a way to socialize women into the act of voting. So you have groups like the League of Women Voters who really take on that task of educating women about political issues. And in doing so, they also educate men about political issues. Um, so they're, so they, they're, their influence is more, um, more subtle than a, a you know, drastic, immediate realignment of the parties. But it certainly transformed um, politics in more subtle ways. Right. Maybe if we had elections back in saloons and uh, barbershops, we might get a higher turnout. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suspect that was not true. <laughs> I love the idea, though. All right. Well, we would like to thank our guests for this 372nd show, Dr. Catherine Rimpf, Chair of the History Department at the University of Missouri, and we've been talking about the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. The history buff for today's show was Brett Menard. You can listen to ROI as it's being broadcast on Friday nights on KLA HD 2, 88.5 FM and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9.30 p.m. 
You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put K-A-L-A-H-D-2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put K-A-L-A Radio, all one word, in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find ROI shows. You can now also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms, like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. ROI is recorded at station K-A-L-A, St. Ambrose University.